what I found when I moved here, I was very happy to move to a country where I felt very welcome. And if anything, I feel more American and at home here than I felt anywhere else, even though, you know, I grew up in London, I grew up in Bangladesh. America really, truly became home very quickly for me. Hey everyone and welcome to the Alien Chronicles, a weekly podcast featuring immigrant stories. Today we are going to delve into the complex framework of the U.S. immigration process. Our guest for today's show is Pehmina Watson. She is a nationally acclaimed immigration attorney and the founder of Watson Immigration Law in Seattle, Washington. She was a barrister in London before immigrating to America. Pamina is also the author of The Startup Visa, Key to Job Growth and Economic Prosperity in America. In addition to appearing on CNN, Forbes, and other media platforms, she's the host of Tehmina Talks Immigration, a radio show turned podcast available on iTunes. Recently, Tehmina helped co-found a non-profit, the Washington Immigration Defense Network, WIDEN, as a result of the current administration's zero-tolerance policy. WIDEN funds and facilitates legal representation in the immigration courtrooms. She is a frequent speaker, a blogger, and an author. She often advises organizations and nonprofits on immigration policy issues, sometimes even law and policy makers. In her spare time, Femina likes to volunteer in the community, listen to audiobooks, and spend time with her family. She's the designer and owner of Pinky's Shoe Bags, a storage solution for a woman who can never have too many shoes. We'll ask Tamina about pressing immigration issues and much more, including her passion for shoes. That's something that I'm interested in knowing about. Welcome, Tamina. So good to have you on my show. Thank you so much, Sadia. I really appreciate being on Alien Chronicles. So, Demina, let's start with your personal story. You were an immigrant and you moved from London. Where did you grow up and what was your childhood like? You know, it's an interesting question because it's not so simple. And everything in my background has really prepared me for the current day. I was born in London, UK. And uh, my parents were immigrants to the UK. They were from Bangladesh. My dad was a lawyer. He went to London in the 60s so he could study to be a barrister. And then in the 70s, he went back to Pakistan because Bangladesh had split from India and Pakistan and Bangladesh became two countries. So my mum's parents had moved to Pakistan just after the war, the 1971 civil war. And so when in the 70s, my dad went to Pakistan, he married my mom. And my mom, you know, they're all Bangladeshi, moved to London in the 70s. And so I was born in the UK. But my dad, because he hadn't been to Bangladesh for so many years, in the early 80s, he took us back to Bangladesh to live. And so uh, when I was eight years old, I moved to Bangladesh. And I even moved within Bangladesh from the capital Dhaka to another city called Jashor, where my maternal grandparents lived. And then I moved to another smaller town called Bagirhat, which is where my paternal grandparents are from. And then I altogether, I lived in Bangladesh for 10 years, moved back to Dhaka, and then moved back to London, where I continued my education and eventually became a lawyer in London, a barrister, which doesn't mean a lot in in the US. Uh, And I was practicing UK law when I was introduced to my husband. His name is Tom. And uh, we eventually got married and I moved to the US in 2005. And so I when people ask me, where did I grow up, grow up? And what's my background? I really truly feel like I'm international enough to say I'm international. And therefore, immigration law is a very, very good fit for me. That's so interesting, Tahmina. So given the fact that you you moved to so many places, and you've been exposed to different cultures and different societies. How has that shaped your understanding of the world, other than being obviously an immigration lawyer, which you are? You know, it's interesting because 
immigration law was not something I wanted to practice at all. You know, my father was a barrister in London during a time when immigration wasn't the trendy thing to do. And my mother came from a, a, a family of lawyers as well. So law was in the background of my family uh, you know, even before I was born. And when I was born, you know, it was almost a given that I was going to become a lawyer. But growing up in all these various cities and towns and countries, I think what it does, like any immigrant, your understanding of the world is much bigger than others who don't travel as much. Your understanding of people and cultures are deeper. And living in those countries and communities, you know, I've learned the language of my family very well. I learned my religion. I learned the community and social and cultural issues. But, you know, like you, you we all grow up with Bollywood. Yeah. And so <laughs> it's all about, you know, at the time, Ashiki. I don't know if you remember that music. Yeah. <laughs> Dilse, you know, I don't get to watch Indian movies anymore, but those are still some of my biggest memories of Eid having uh, Sarak, the music of Sarak being everywhere at the time. And, you know, it's, it's interesting because now I can draw on all of those experiences and they're still current in all the people that I deal with. And so it's helped me understand social, cultural issues. I can speak broken Hindi, even though some of my clients will say, it's okay to me, it's okay to me, I don't have to speak Hindi with me. <laughs> <laughs> because, you know, they get embarrassed. But, you know, for that person who doesn't understand English at all, you know, with English and Bangla and Hindi mixed together, I can get myself understood. And all of those issues together really have have made immigration law such a perfect fit for me because I'm dealing with people from all over the world on a very daily basis. That's true. And so, Tamina, after you got married, you, you said you moved to the U.S. What was your initial impression of the American society? You know, I grew up in London where I, you know, never thought about having lack of rights, speaking English. You know, I you come to, to this country... And what I felt in the early days is it, it felt so open. People were friendly and everyone's willing to give you a push up, you know, as opposed to pulling you down. People are welcoming and generous. Whenever there's a disaster in the world, the American people give generously. And so what I found when I moved here, I was very happy to move to a country where I felt very welcome. And if anything, I feel more American and at home here than I felt anywhere else, even though, you know, I grew up in London, I grew up in Bangladesh. America really, truly became home very quickly for me. What's interesting is, though, learning to write little things, little things that took a long time to, to get used to. So I don't know about you, but when we go out shopping for groceries in England, we would buy coriander. And coriander is the uh, the cilantro, and but I didn't know the word cilantro. Yeah. <laughs> I'm like, what is cilantro? And uh, you know, some of these cultural things between the UK and US took a little time to get used to. Spelling, for example, why does uh, the UK have a an extra U in color? Switches, even the little switches on the on the wall, they're reversed from the UK to the US. Any of your listeners who have grown up in, in a Commonwealth country will know that when you're turning a light on or off, it's, uh, I forget what it is now, but whatever it is in the US, it's the opposite. I didn't drive in the UK, so I brain, my brain wasn't confused on that front. It took a lot of time. Even writing the date took some time. And so as a country, you know, I loved being welcome, being part of the hodgepodge of people, even though things have changed recently. I think people typically can become American and feel part of the community because typically people have been welcoming. And, you know, I'm sure we're going to talk about what's happening in the current day. But I, I love America. And eventually I became a citizen and I did it reluctantly. I wasn't necessarily being the first person to apply for citizenship as soon as I became eligible. But I became a citizen after my daughter was born. And I would encourage your listeners to read my article. It was published in the Seattle Times. 
And my story of citizenship is in that op-ed. But I didn't necessarily feel like I needed to get citizenship of the U.S. because, you know, I love the U.K. It's my home country. I didn't necessarily have to. But I was a green card holder. And a lot of your your listeners might relate to this, that if you're a green card holder, there are limitations in how long you stay in the U.S., how long you visit outside the U.S., how you might lose your green card. And so when my daughter was born, who is now nine, I felt the urge to become a citizen just so that I have the security and stability of being in the same country as my daughter should you know, life happens sometimes and I didn't want any issues to come and, you know, jeopardize my green card and therefore jeopardize my stay in the U.S. But when I became a U.S. citizen, and I absolutely urge your listeners to read my article, that day is the day I really realized how much I appreciated being an American. Because you might appreciate this, Sadia, and your listeners might appreciate it. Wherever you are in the world, you can work hard. 24-7. But sometimes, I mean, in many other countries, you do not have anything to show for it because there are rules and restrictions and so forth. But in America, you actually can achieve the American dream if you work hard. You can have that lovely house, the car, and a you know, nice warm home if there's snow outside like I have today. And these types of dreams are not necessarily achievable in other countries countries. And so the day of my citizenship, I really appreciated the fact that I am in America, I am an American, and I am going to do my best to contribute back. And so when you ask me about how do I feel about America, I feel just as American as anybody else. And I love America just as anybody else. But it doesn't take my love away from the UK. And it doesn't take the love away from my parents' country of Bangladesh, because I feel that I'm a global, global citizen. They may have different ethnic affiliations, but at the end of the day, once they come to the U.S. and once they integrate into this society, then they become Americans and they have so much more to offer in terms of the diversity of their experiences, as as you explained to us right now. And I think becoming a citizen is also important because then you can contribute to the political process. You can vote because as, as a green card holder, you are not supposed to vote. And that's such an important right to have, especially in in today's political environment. Uh, since you are on our show today, I would like to take this opportunity to ask you some important questions around immigration so that folks who are concerned or worried can get some idea of what, what's really happening. Because we hear things in the media and of course there's a government's rhetoric around immigration and it seems like this government is enacting policy and legislative changes to discourage immigration. Can you help us separate fact from fiction? Is that what's really happening right now? Or are we just overly conscious or overly worried about the situation? You know, I'd be happy to talk about all of that. And that's something that I deal with on a very daily basis. But I want to touch on something you mentioned earlier. You said that green card holders are not supposed to vote, and that's very true. But the stronger way to put it is green card holders are not allowed to vote. And so if you're, any of your listeners are listening and they're green card holders, I would absolutely make sure that they know that they are not legally entitled to vote until they become U.S. citizens. And you can become a U.S. citizen three years after getting a green card through marriage or five years uh, after getting a green card through any other means. Now, in terms of your question is there really a restrictionist immigration policy going on? The answer is absolutely. When this president took office, he immediately signed three executive orders. One about interior enforcement, two about border security, and three, two days later, he signed the travel ban executive order. And these are unprecedented ways of changing policy without Congress doing anything. And what has happened since that fateful January week, on the Wednesday, the first two executive orders were signed and the Friday, the travel ban was signed. And you fast forward the clock two years, it's exactly two years now. We have seen how these policies have created obstacle after obstacle after obstacle 
in the immigration world. And it doesn't matter what kind of immigrant you are, every type of immigrant is affected. Now let's categorize those. If you are an asylum seeker, as you're probably hearing in the news day in, day out, asylum policies are changing. If you come to the U.S. from the border in Mexico, the law allows somebody to come to the U.S. and apply for citizen, um, uh, uh, asylum. This administration is now sending them outside the country to wait while the case is processed. Now, this is not legally, this is not what the law allows. The law says you must come to the U.S. and apply for asylum. By law, they, you can't send them back to the country of persecution. So where are these asylum seekers being sent to then? Well, the ones that are coming into the U.S. at the southern border, they're typically from Honduras or Guatemala, and they're waiting in Mexico. So you're right, you bring up a very good point. And very soon, you will very likely see some lawsuits on this very issue. When somebody is applying for asylum, just in case some of your listeners don't know, they are proving that their life is in danger. And it's in danger because either of their religious background, their nationality, political belief or social group. They have to prove that their life is in danger and they can't move anywhere else in their country to be protected. But the policies that we have on asylum have been here for decades and they've worked well because this is one of the biggest countries and the most affluent countries in the world. And to see the policies that we are seeing through this administration is actually pretty inhumane. And what we've also seen is a zero tolerance policy. How can we in 2018 separate mothers from their children, parent dads from their children, babies as small as you know, 12 months, 18 months being snatched away from their, from their parents. And now, you know, now we are learning that almost 4,000, I believe, that's the number, cannot be re reunited with, the, with their parents. I mean, the, the, the crisis and the crime against humanity is unbearable in a 2018 world, let alone a 2018 America. And so that's the asylum world. But what about the other worlds? In the family-based immigration, a lot of times we see uh, family members, spouses, parents, children applying for their green cards. Those processing times are now taking three or four times longer. There are policies in place, rules that are being created at the moment that will in the future prevent family members from coming in and those rules just in case anybody wants to look them up do a google search of public charge and immigration because the government as as things stand at the moment if a u.s citizen sponsor is able to show financial capability of maintaining that family member they can get green cards for them but what the new rules will do is say that that person who is immigrating also has to show that they have the funds to look after themselves. And so a lot of immigrants who come to this country and become citizens will often sponsor their parents or their children. And the parents are often elderly people. How are they going to be able to show income? to look after themselves. So in the coming months, we will likely see these rules finally published and they will single-handedly affect family-based immigration in a way that we have not seen. And so that's another way of restricting immigration and that's a family-based category. Let's talk about business immigration. That's my, my field of expertise where I help businesses either uh, get work visas for their employees or businessmen and women get visas for themselves. And these can be H-1Bs and Ls and Es, O visas, green cards. All these visas have been affected because on April 17th, a fourth executive order was signed called Buy American, Hire American. And in that, there was a very simple line that said, you must hire the brightest minds and the highest paid people. Now, by that, by itself, the line doesn't necessarily indicate much. You know, when I first saw that, I thought, oh, Congress has to do something first, and then we'll see some changes. But what we saw several months after is that the USCIS and the Department of Homeland Security started to restrict 
the adjudication policy. So H-1Bs have never received as much scrutiny as they are now. And two years later, we can say for certain with statistics that there have not been more denials on H-1Bs than we have seen in the last two years. And I would encourage your listeners, if they want to see some statistics, on my Facebook page for my law firm, Watson Immigration Law, there is an article written by a reporter called Roy Mora. And he has charts and diagrams of how visas uh, have been denied and what kind of visas have been denied. And so what we are seeing is this narrowing of immigration policies from every angle so that immigration can be restricted. And all of this is happening without Congress doing anything. Congress continues to fight, you know, negotiate and bicker, but no result is actually happening. And so in the meantime, the administration is making use of these executive orders. And while the executive orders are not necessarily saying too much, they are basically the key for having all these policies created from them. So, for example, Buy American, Hire American, with that one line, instantly showed that H-1Bs were getting scrutiny on whether people are getting paid enough. You know, what kind of degree they have. Is that degree enough for the job? When it comes to L visas, when people are transferring from one country to another, the government is scrutinizing issues we've never seen before. When it comes to e-visas, I have never seen a denial on an e for a substantive reason before. And we've seen denials on e-visas that we've never seen before. So to answer your question, it is absolute fact that this administration is really looking to narrow down immigration to the U.S. in, in sort of like this backhanded way because they cannot do it through Congress. And Thamina, what I am hearing is, uh, and and you've given us such a detailed account, and I hope our listeners, it helps them get a better idea of what's going on. But I see skeptics of immigration, and, and they will say things like, oh, the U.S. cannot admit everyone, and that our jobs are being taken away by immigrants and our manufacturing jobs. And I mean, there is so much negativity. What would you say to skeptics of immigration? And what are some of the myths about immigration? Because I'm assuming, and please, this will have an adverse economic impact on U.S. economy as well, when the kind of policy or the legislative framework that is being put in place in terms of immigration policies? That's a very good question. And it's a question that gets asked a lot. And what this administration has been very good at is setting a narrative that immigrants are bad. But the reality is quite the reverse. And I would ask your listeners to find a report that is written by a nonprofit organization called the Partnership for a New American Economy. And what they have done is they have reports on every state, every state about how immigrants are contributing to the economy. Immigrants contribute. So let's take them by category. Undocumented immigrants, and let's let's talk about them for a moment. Undocumented immigrants are those who cross the border illegally and stay here. And some are overstayers. In fact, in the latest statistics, overstayers are staying here by far more than people who are crossing the border. But all these undocumented folks do contribute to the national, you know, social security funds. So one of the things that we are seeing is taxpayer money is coming in from both documented as well as undocumented people. And that is what's keeping the social security funds uh, healthy. And I would also encourage your listeners to find an article that's written by a reporter called uh, Nina Roberts. She recently wrote a very detailed article about how the social security funds are being healthily funded by undocumented people. So that's undocumented people who are contributing in many ways. When it comes to family-based immigrants, these are people who are generally coming and actually making an impact through the various types of jobs that exist in the country. They're not necessarily taking jobs away from people. They're doing jobs that American workers don't necessarily want to do. When it comes to high-skilled immigrants, this country simply doesn't have 
the resource to actually do what it takes for the IT industry. While H-1Bs are being battered at the moment, every employer that I speak with will say, I can't find anybody to do the job. It has been a tradition that U.S. students will typically take non-STEM degrees. And so all these STEM jobs that are necessary are being fulfilled by immigrants who are coming from India, from China, from Pakistan, Bangladesh, and various other countries where math is given a lot of emphasis in the education. When it comes to low-skilled work, picking apples, for example, catching fish, for example, you know, um, taking care of the elderly, you will not find a lot of American workers wanting to do this job. So whether it's high-skilled or low-skilled, there aren't enough workers to do these jobs. So when I ask you, your listeners, to look up these reports, particularly from the new American economy, you can look at your own state. The report will give you a drop-down menu to look at your own state and see how immigrants are contributing. So, for example, in Washington state where I live, I didn't know this until I read the report, that we have the eighth largest dairy industry. We have one of the largest um, agricultural industries. And more than half of the workers in each of these industries are immigrants. So if your listeners will close their eyes for a minute and think about immigrants not doing these jobs, what's going to happen to the crop that we have and the food that we eat. The prices will go up. There simply wouldn't be enough quantity for everybody. And eventually the economy suffers. So the narrative that this particular administration has put towards the media about immigrants is false because immigrants contribute in ways that are visible as well as invisible. Let's take an H-1B worker, for example. And you will find this report, this what I'm about to say in, in the new American economy as well. Every H-1B worker has a multiplier effect. So from one H-1B worker, which is a high-skilled worker, you they will create five non-professional jobs because they need cleaners, they need um, uh, laundrettes, uh, they, need, they need assistance in their own lives. So you have five non-professional jobs that were created from that one H-1B worker. And from those five workers are two professional jobs that get created because that H-1B worker is going to need an accountant and is going to need a doctor for example. So there is a multiplier effect that is not necessarily visible. So the narrative again that is being put forward over and over again is absolutely false because without immigrants, this country would not function in the way that it is to, does today. And one of the examples I give to a lot of people is just you just need to look at your phone. Just look at your phone. Every listener, pick up your phone and look at it. The hardware the software, the Wi-Fi, the network, everything on your phone is being kept up because an immigrant is working in the, back, uh, in the background. And so our daily lives will be affected if we do not have the immigrants that we have in this country. We have seen that the, the rhetoric, the political rhetoric against immigrants, also sometimes like the idea is that, oh, they, they are a burden on our economy. And you have clarified or dispelled those myths for us. Now, for those folks who I'm sure there are many who are worried as to what's happening right now, and they may be looking for lawyers. What do you suggest for people who need lawyers, but don't know how and where to get one? What should they do? Like, what is what is the right way of looking for a good lawyer? Um, that's a very good question. And much of it depends on what, you, what type of case you have that you need help with, where you live. So if you are somehow uh, unfortunate to be in immigration court, it's important that you have a local lawyer. And to look for a lawyer, one of the best websites you can have is www.a for apple, I for ink, L for lemon, A for apple, Ayla, dot O-R-G. That's American Immigration Lawyers Association dot org. And there is a function in it called lawyer search. And you can put your zip code and you can search a lawyer that way. So that would be the generic way that one should look for a lawyer. 
But again, if you uh, have a case like a family-based case or an employment-based case, you don't necessarily have to have a lawyer locally. I mean, I have clients all over the country and a lot of them I have never met before. Because immigration is a federal practice and you're often dealing with service centers around the country, you know, people like myself can help people who are not in the same city. But if somebody is looking for a lawyer, I always recommend the AILA website for a lawyer search. And how does anybody decide, Tamina, who is a good lawyer? What are, like, what are some of the things people should look at uh, to determine whether this person is a good lawyer? You know, that's a very good question. I When somebody comes to me and often people are shopping around, um, you know, for the best price or, you know, trying to feel out the lawyer, I will tell them Google me. Because I think what's important is immigration used to be a long journey and it's an even longer journey now for people, particularly if you're getting, you know, family-based cases or even the work visas these days. There was a report that came out from AILA I want to say two weeks ago, or maybe three weeks ago, and it found that cases are now taking across the board 47, 46% longer than it used to. And so your primary goal should be to find a lawyer that is good, has a good reputation, knows what they're doing. And that you can do by searching online. But often a recommendation is also very important. If your friend had a good experience from a lawyer in, you know, New York City, there's no reason why you wouldn't want to to go to that lawyer. And so what are you looking for when you're speaking to them? Is do you have a good rapport with them? Do they understand? Do you feel like they understand you? And uh, what have you learned about them from other means? And, you know, I was speaking today to somebody and I said, what you what you want to do as a as a lawyer is to make sure that you care about people and do a good job. And so when you are searching for a lawyer, see if you can find those things out. Do you feel like they are they know their stuff and do you feel like they do a good job? Uh, Thamina, I would also like to ask you about your organization, which is, you know, which facilitates legal representation in immigration courtrooms, specifically it's Widen. Can you talk a little bit about your organization and how it's helping immigrants? Mm-hmm. Thank you for asking. Well, first of all, you listeners should know that I, my primary job <laughs> is an immigration lawyer and my law firm is Watson Immigration Law. But over the years, uh, and I was reminded this morning, I have done so much pro bono work in the world, in both in England um, and here during my student days, as well as my lawyery days. And in the last two years, this administration has made me do more pro bono work than I have done ever. <laughs> And it's because I can't help myself. I have a skill that is absolutely necessary in today's day. And I want to be able to use it. You know, I was listening to Cory Booker's book this week. I'm snowed in. For those who don't know, Seattle is going through a snowstorm. And so I've been snowed in and I've been listening to various books. And Cory Booker's mother said to him when he was in law school, saying, what are you going to do with yourself? And she said something that resonates with me and I think about that all the time is that your faith and your gratitude in life should be shown with how much you're giving in the world. And that is something I actually have as a mantra in my head that I'm so grateful in life that I must give as much as I am grateful to the community. So when we lost the election, in 2016, I started a committee with the local AILA chapter called the Response Committee. And, you know, the writing was on the wall. There was going to be a Muslim ban. There was going to be mass deportation. You know, what did he not say on the campaign trail? There was fear of what was going to happen to immigrants as soon as he was going to take office. And we saw that unravel, you know, step by step as he as he got in. But I had the foresight to help us have a committee that helped immigration lawyers go to where they were needed. So when they were needed at the airports, I was able to help group them, collate names and pass them to the people who were organizing. But what was happening in my mind throughout that time was that the very first executive order that was signed that basically removed all priorities and made almost everybody a, a, a target for deportation and it was about the interior enforcement, I kept thinking, what am I going to do when somebody says, I need 10 immigration lawyers to go to immigration court? 
that is not something that can be done for free. An immigration lawyer can go to a legal clinic for one or two hours a week. An immigration lawyer can go to the airport and stay there for a couple of hours a week. But you cannot take a case that is going to last for months and years that need complex work and time-consuming work for free. And so as I was thinking about what to do, the administration took away DACA protection. The administration took away TPS protection. And then they actually imposed the zero tolerance policy. And it was at the zero tolerance policy level that I I was able to, I had some colleagues who were also interested in, in solving this issue. And we all grouped together and created Washington Immigrant Defense Network. And what happens with Widen, Washington Immigrant Defense Network, the website is W-I-D-E-N-L-A-W.org is to take non-immigration lawyers who've been wanting to help but don't have the substantive knowledge, to train them and then group them with immigration lawyers and then raise funds to give the immigration lawyer a very small stipend compared to what they would charge in a court in a, an actual case, and then group them as a team and give them a case in the immigration court that would otherwise have no representation. Reports show that somebody who is in an immigration court trial would actually have a 10 times better result if they have an immigration lawyer at their side representing them. So Wyden's motto is to make sure that we can provide legal representation to people facing trials. Now, it hasn't happened easily. You know, we're still relatively new. We're still raising funds. We're still getting off the ground. But it's an innovative and creative way to solve the current problem of lack of immigration representation in the courtroom. We do not have, as a country, legal representation rights in the same way that the criminal system allows. And so this will hopefully widen, for want of a better word, widen the capacity of the immigration lawyer and bring the broader legal community together to help a chronic problem that we currently face. Femina, can you talk a little bit about zero tolerance policy for those listeners who don't know what it means? Very good question. Now, we had never seen this before. This happened uh, April uh, last year where it started to happen but wasn't necessarily vocal or visible. And then in May and June last year, it became you know widespread and it was exposed. So zero tolerance essentially means that the administration is not going to tolerate people coming to the U.S. without authorization. So zero tolerance. But what that meant in practice... And this is what really happened, is that they were prosecuting people crossing the border. And we talked about asylum earlier. People can come to the country and ask for asylum. But those people crossing the border asking for asylum were then charged with criminal violations of the law, so crimes. And because of the crimes, they were also separating children from them. And so what it became is a separation of families policy. You know, I don't know how many, I don't know what the final numbers are, but they have separated thousands and thousands of children from their parents. And they didn't do it in an organized manner. They did it haphazardly. And now there are children separated from their families that will never be reunited. So zero tolerance really means, legally speaking, that they will not tolerate people crossing the border illegally. But in practice, it became a family separation policy. And this wasn't, it seems like, even planned or the execution was not planned or the logistics were not figured out, which makes it 10 times or 100 times worse than what it was supposed to be. Well, well, that absolutely, I agree with you. And, uh, you know, they initially denied having a policy like that. The DHS secretary denied uh, vehemently that there was a policy about family separation, only to admit to it months later. And so, yes, it was done without any thought or any regard to human beings and human lives. And these children, you know, as a mother, I don't know how many times I've shed tears because I look at my children's faces and I see those children. I've had many a nightmare myself. And all of these issues are what 
keep me going in trying to channel my anger into something positive. So Widen is now incorporated as a nonprofit organization. We have our certification. We actually just launched formally two weeks ago. And we had a national organization called Forward.us, F for fish, W for water, D for dog.us, Forward.us, which is a national advocacy organization that was founded by Mark Zuckerberg and many other CEOs like him. And they pledged $25,000 for our nonprofit so that we could continue establishing ourselves. And what that shows is the trust in our new model and the belief that we are hopefully going to find a way to bring more legal representation into the courtroom. And why is this necessary? There are simply not enough immigration lawyers to cover the work that needs to be done in the courtroom. There absolutely isn't. So what we hope will happen at the end of this is we will train more people on immigration law who will provide pro bono assistance to the immigration lawyers who will get a stipend. But should there be another crisis, we will have more people to add to the pool who need to fight. So, Tamina, now we'll move on to your another passion other than immigration, and that's shoes. And I am very interested in knowing about Pinky's shoe bags. Um, uh, it's a storage solution, right? Can you elaborate on it? What is it all about? Yeah, well, thank you so much for asking this. I really appreciate it. So when I moved to America, I, I was a newlywed and I hadn't quite taken the bar exams in the U.S. to practice law. I moved having been a very busy junior barrister in the U.K., and when you're a barrister in the UK, you're working 24-7. I used to wake up at 5 a.m. to make sure I'm in some court, some unknown place at 9 a.m. And then I make sure I'm finished with that case and come back to another court in a different part of, uh, you know, London at 1 p.m. to make sure I'm finished by 4 p.m. to make sure I get back to chambers in the evening to get my case for the next day and start the circle again. So... Moving to America and suddenly having nothing to do was just not easy for me. And my husband, who happens to be a patent lawyer, works very long hours. And so I didn't realize how long uh, he worked during the day until I got married. <laughs> you, know, you know, I suddenly am living in this house with this wonderful man, but he's at work all the time. And I was thinking, what do I do? When I realized when I moved all my belongings, I had a lot of shoes. A lot of shoes that didn't fit the one-bedroom apartment that we lived in. And so I started to think about what are my solutions. And I couldn't, you know, I go to the store and I find these boxes. I'm like, I've got nowhere for boxes. And so I, I suddenly thought about what about a bag that has a window in it? And I knew that one day I wouldn't be a, a bored housewife. <laughs> I'm going to become, you know, the, the lawyer that I want to be. How am I going to find my shoes? So that's how I started to sew shoe bags. I basically sewed them with my hand. I didn't know how to use a sewing machine. And my husband took me to Joanne's Fabrics one day and I bought a lot of fabrics and I played with them. And that was the birth of shoe bags. And there was one time my husband came back from Hong Kong and he said, hey, you know, I think I found a manufacturer for you. And then we had our shoe bags sewn um, from these factories. And so that's the story of Pinky Shoe Bags. It's essentially a, a bag that is a drawstring bag made of dupioni silk. They are red and it has a plastic cover, which is adorned with lace on the, on, the, uh, on the side of the window. And you can see your shoes from the outside. And so once I had the manufacturers, they, I manufactured, I don't know, 40,000 bags. And then I suddenly became, you know, I finished my bar exams in, in the U.S. I started to practice immigration law. And then, you know, the shoe bags took a side uh, step into my actual career. And so that's the story of the shoe bags. I still have a lot of shoe bags that I need to sell, but I haven't actually sold all of them yet. So if anybody has any ideas to partner with me, I'd be happy to, I'm happy to talk to them. And where can they find, is there a website they can go to and see these shoe bags or purchase yeah. them? You know, I had a website. I don't think it's live at the moment, but I have my Facebook page on on Facebook called Pinky Shoe Bags is still live. So you can see some of the bags there. 
Okay, Temina, now we'll move on to our rapid fire round. This is like a fun round where we get to know you even better. And I ask these questions where you can just give short answers. And we'll start with the first question. Reading books or listening to music? Listening to books, actually. <laughs> you know, I, you're the second person who said that. My previous guest said the same thing. And I am the same. I just like to listen to books. I can't, I don't know why, but I just don't have the, I don't know, patience or something. Like, I just can't read them anymore. I'm with you. I'm with you. I mean, Audible has changed my life. And I think it's about been about 18 months that I've been listening to books. And once I got the hang of listening to books, I can't stop. And it's changed my life. I've learned so much over the last 18 months just by listening to books. And I have, quote unquote, read more books over the last 18 years than I have in the last 18 months because I can actually just, you know, cook and clean and do laundry and drive, drive the kids from place to place or drive to work. And books are just my constant companion. And if you could only eat one food for the rest of your life, what would it be? Oh, goodness. That's changed over time, but I think it would be sashimi. Ah, if you could only take three things to a deserted island, what would they be? I think it would be my audio books. It will be my children. <laughs> and um, what else? And my husband. Name three things on your bucket list. Um... Traveling as many countries as I can. Which countries have you traveled so far, like other than Bangladesh and England? And I, I, did you, have you been to Pakistan? You know, I took my first steps in Pakistan oh. because my mom, when I was born, took me back to see her parents and they were still living in Lahore. So I have been to Pakistan, but I don't remember it. I was very, very small. But, I, you know, I've been to many countries, of Japan, uh, many parts of Europe, Fiji, um, many countries. I haven't gone to Latin America much, but, you know, I, the world, the the, the Life is young still, and my children are small, and I have a lot of spring breaks. It's my new epiphany. My children are in the school system, and I initially grudged spring break, thinking, oh, my gosh, I have a week out of school, and I can't work. And so after begrudging it for a couple of years, I'm now embracing it, saying, hey, husband, spring break means we, means, means we have to travel. So, you know, with all these holidays for school, I'm now going to use them to see the world and make my children see as much as they can. So travel is one? Uh, bucket list. I want to make sure I want, you know, I think about this often, but I don't exercise, but I want to live long enough to see my children old enough and married and hopefully have children of themselves. So that's the second one. And the third one is, let's see, I don't know, I want to make an impact in the world. Hmm. You're already doing that, Nemina, so. I don't know. I don't know what the ultimate goal is. So I, I think the third one will be a mystery. And if you could have any superpower, what would that be? To make the world utopia, bring peace around the globe. Your biggest failure? Um, biggest failure. I'm sure I have a lot. I have yelled at my children a lot, you know, uh, as a busy mom. I think that's a failure, but I've taken care of it. I take, uh, you know, I'm, I'm getting used to being a relaxed mom, trying at least meditating and working on myself. So I think the last two years have been stressful. So the biggest failure, I'd say, is not learning to manage stress quick enough. And your biggest achievement? I think my, my children by far, my husband and my children. And if you were to describe yourself in three words? Passionate mother and wife who wants to bring peace to the world. What's the best piece of advice you ever got? I remember at my bridal shower, there were a lot of little pieces of paper with good advice written. And I think one of them was don't sweat the little things. And I think I've learned that more practically as I have grown into motherhood. Because, you know, as a singleton, people without, you know, who don't have the various 
competing priorities don't necessarily understand that the little things don't necessarily matter. So I think that's the best advice I've had. Don't sweat the little things. Your idea of vacation? I'm having quiet time or fun time with my family. If I were to ask you best Bengali restaurant in Seattle, which one would you suggest? Oh, what a great question. You know, there is a wonderful restaurant in Seattle called Bengal Tiger. And it is the only restaurant that has a Bangladeshi owner. So the flavors of the food have a very Bangladeshi feel to it. And so hands down, Bengal Tiger. And people can look it up on the website. I think it's called bengaltiger.com or bengaltigerrestaurant.com. Your favorite emoji? The one with the little kiss face, I think. Yeah. Tea or coffee? (laughs) Oh, tea, hands down. I became a person when I moved to Seattle. And it's about two years ago, I actually gave up coffee. And so now I drink tea exclusively. And home is? Home is where my heart is, which is right now in Seattle. Thank you so much, Thamina. This was so good. And the whole interview was so informative and productive. I hope our listeners were able to take a lot of information with them. Well, thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. And I would also try to post links that you have mentioned on our website so that our listeners can go on our website and check those links out. Where can they find information about your law firm? Is there a website they can go to? Yes, thank you for asking. It's www.watsonimmigrationlaw.com. And we have clients all around the country, even outside the country that we've never met. So we, as long as it's not an immigration court, we can generally help almost all types of cases. And you also do a podcast, which is very specific to immigration issues. Uh, it's called Zahmina Talks Immigration. So if someone wants to go to iTunes and subscribe to it and listen to if they have a particular issue that they are interested in, they can do that as well. Absolutely. Absolutely. And that's a very interesting story. I had a radio show for two years and now that is a podcast on iTunes. Yes. Tamina Talks Immigration. And I would also like to thank all the listeners for joining us today. And please do subscribe to our podcast. Don't forget to check out our website at www alienchroniclespod.com. Again, if you have a story to share or any new ideas, please contact us at info at alienchroniclespod.com. You can also follow us on Twitter. Our Twitter handle is at Chronicles Alien and you can find us on Instagram at The Alien Chronicles. Please stay tuned for our next episode when we will bring to you another immigrant story. And in the meantime, stay connected.